in which it was concluded that an assembly beholden at Edinburgh, August 6, 1639, and the Parliament of the 20th of the same month, that same year, for healing the wide breaches and redressing the grievances of both church and state, that what was determined by the assembly might be ratified by the Parliament. In this assembly, the covenant was ratified and subscribed by the commissioner, and an injunction laid upon the body of the kingdom for subscribing the same, with an explication, wherein the five articles of Perth, government of bishops, the civil places, and power of Kirkman were expressly condemned. Hereby the hopes of the prelates again being in a great measure lost, and they receiving fresh assistance from the king, who seemed to have little conscience in making laws and found small difficulty in breaking them, recruited themselves the year following, and took the field, but with no better success than formerly, which obliged them to yield to another pacification, wherein both religious and civil liberties were ratified. And in 1641 these were further confirmed by the oaths, promises, laws, and subscriptions of both king and parliament, whereat the king was personally present, and gave the royal assent to all acts made for the security of the same, while at the same time he was concurring in the bloody tragedy acted upon the Protestants in the kingdom of Ireland. The gracious countenance and abundant evidence of divine approbation wherewith the Lord vouchsafed to bless his contending, reformed, and covenanting church in Scotland in a plentiful effusion of his Holy Spirit on the judicatories and worshipping assemblies of his people proved a happy means to excite and provoke their neighbors in England and Ireland to go and do likewise. For in the year 1643, when the beginning of a bloody war between the King and Parliament of England threatened the nations with a series of calamity and trouble, the Parliament, having convocated an assembly of divines to sit at Westminster for consulting about a reformation of religion in that kingdom, sent commissioners, consisting of members of both houses and assembly, to treat with the assembly of the Church of Scotland and Convention of Estates about these things. In the month of August, they presented their proposals to the Convention of Estates and Assembly, desiring that because the popish prelatical faction is still pursuing their design of corrupting and altering the religion throughout the whole island, the two nations might be strictly united for their mutual defense against them and their adherents, and not to lay down arms until those, their implacable enemies, were disarmed, etc. Commissioners... <clears throat> were deputed from the from the estate deputed from the estates and assembly to convene with those from England in order to consider their proposals and at the first conferences it was agreed that the best and speediest means for accomplishing the union and assistance desired was for both nations to enter into a mutual league and covenant for reformation and defense of religion and liberty against its enemies which being drawn up and affectionately embraced, it was unanimously approved by the General Assembly and sent up to England by the hands of the ministers and elders, sent commissioners from the Church of Scotland to the Synod at Westminster, where, being proposed by the Parliament to the consideration of the Synod, after the interpolation of an explanatory note in the second article, it was approved, and with public humiliation, and all other religious and answerable solemnity taken and subscribed by them, the Synod, and by both how honorable houses of Parliament, and by their authority taken and subscribed by all ranks in England and Ireland that same year, 
ratified by act of the Parliament of Scotland, anno 1644, and afterward renewed in Scotland with an acknowledgment of sins and engagement to duties by all ranks in the year 1648 and by the Parliament, 1649. Thus to the rejoicing of all true lovers of the prosperity and beauty of the Church, who longed for Christ, the salvation of Israel, his coming forth out of Zion, these three churches and nations combined and embarked together in the same honorable and glorious cause of reformation, and solemnly bound themselves by the oath of God to maintain and defend the same against all its enemies and opposers whatever, thereby publicly professing their subjection to Christ and their preferring of pure and undefiled religion, the advancement of the interest, kingdom, and glory of Jesus Christ to their nearest and dearest interests in this world. And the Lord was with us while we were with him, and steadfast in his covenant. But when we forsook, forsook him and broke his covenant, he also forsook us, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. In the next place, the assembly at Westminster, with the assistance of commissioners from the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, proceeded to conclude on what was needful for furthering and completing this intended and covenanted uniformity in religion, that the Lord might be one and his name one in the three lands. And for this purpose a confession of faith was composed and agreed upon by that venerable assembly, together with catechisms, larger and shorter, propositions concerning church government, ordination of ministers, and directory for worship, all which were received and approved by the General Assembly and Convention of Estates in Scotland. The Lord, thus prospering his work in the hands of his servants employed in ecclesiastical affairs, gave no less countenance unto the Parliament of England, with the assistance they received from Scotland in defeating all the wicked attempts of the popish, prolatical, and malignant party in England, overthrowing their tyranny, and reducing the supporters thereof. A like victory was at length obtained over Montrose in Scotland, who commanded the royalist or malignant party there, and had for some time carried all before him. And so the king being worsted at all hands, and despairing of overtaking his designs, his army having been almost all cut to pieces, and he himself obliged to fly, resigned himself over to the Scots army at Newark in the year 1646, and marched along with them to Newcastle. And they, upon the frequent solicitations of the English Parliament, and their engaging for the king's honorable treatment, delivered him over to them. Afterward, he falling into the hands of Cromwell and the English army, a number in this nation violated the oath of God, which they had lately come under, by engaging in an unlawful war with England, commonly called the Duke's Engagement, in order to rescue the king from his captivity, notwithstanding that he still persisted in his opposition to the just claims both of the church and nation, and, after all that was come upon him, could not be reconciled to the covenants and work of reformation. <clears throat> where they were in July 1648, totally routed by Oliver Cromwell, and Duke Hamilton, their general, being made prisoner, was incarcerated and afterward beheaded. This engagement was remonstrated against and judicially condemned by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. 
and the sinfulness of it was publicly acknowledged as a breach of the covenant union between the two nations by all ranks in Scotland that same year at the renovation of the solemn league and covenant therein. At last the king, being seized upon by Cromwell and his sectarian army, was, notwithstanding all the remonstrances of both of church and state, removed by a violent death upon which the Parliament of Scotland on the 5th of February, 1649, caused proclaim his son Charles II, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, which title he had assumed himself at the Hague as soon as the report of his father's death came to his ears, promising their fidelity in defense of his person and authority according to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, and at the same time declaring that before he be admitted to the exercise of the royal power, he shall give security for the preservation and maintenance of the true reformed religion and unity of the kingdoms now established by laws both civil and ecclesiastical according to the covenants, which security for religion and liberty at the first proposed treaty at the Hague he deferred to grant, and afterward postponed the signing of the treaty at Breda, where everything was agreed upon, from the great hopes he entertained of accomplishing his design, without acquiescing with their demand for, Montrose, for Montrose's expedition, whom he had sent into Scotland with an army in order to prepare his way into that kingdom by devastation with fire and sword. But this intrigue not succeeding, he found himself obliged to comply with all their proposals and signed the treaty. This treaty the king did in effect break before he left Breda by communicating after the Episcopal manner contrary to the express warning and remonstrance of the commissioners from the Church of Scotland, who went to him and showed him his sin in so doing, and how inconsistent it was with his own concessions in the present treaty, and in evidence that he had no intention to perform what he had agreed to, but dissembled with God and man. And he, on the other hand, put them off with sham excuses and professions. And so... <clears throat> From their too much credulity to his fraudulent professions and promises all along, they brought him over to Scotland. And before his landing in this kingdom, he takes the covenant at Spey on the 23rd of June, 1649, by his oath subjoined in allowance and approbation of the covenant's national and solemn league, obliging himself faithfully to prosecute the ends thereof in his station and calling. And for himself and successors, he shall agree to all acts of Parliament in joining the same, and establishing presbyterial church government, the directory for worship, confession of faith and catechisms in the kingdom of Scotland, as approved by the general assemblies of this kirk and Parliament of this kingdom. And for their further satisfaction, according to the Act of the West Kirk, Edinburgh, August 13, 1650, approved the same day by the Committee of Estates, he emitted a declaration at Dumfernline by profession, fully and heartily acquiescing with all their demands, all which afterwards served for nothing but as a lasting monument of his horrid perjury, wicked dissimulation, and mockery of God and man. And even then, when this declaration was published, he had formed a design for bringing in the enemies of the covenant and work of reformation both into the army and judicatories and for dividing the Presbyterians among themselves. And this he effectually managed for both foresaid ends 
by the public resolutions on the 14th of December that same year, 1650. This woeful and prime step of defection, so contrary to the word and injurious to the work of God, was faithfully testified against by many, both ministers and whole presbyteries, who were sensible of the present sinfulness and evil of it, and foresaw the bitter and dismal consequences that followed upon it. In the meantime, notwithstanding this and other shrewd evidences, the king gave of his double-dealing and hypocrisy, he was crowned at Scone on the 1st of January, 1651, and had the Covenants National and Solemn League again administered unto him by the Reverend Mr. Douglas after a sermon from 2 Kings 11, verses 12 and 17, which he, in a most solemn manner, renewed before the three estates of Parliament, the commissioners of the General Assembly, and a numerous congregation, in the words of his former oath at Spey with the coronation oath, as contained in the eighth Acts of Parliament first, James the sixth, to all which he engaged before his coronation. And on these terms, and no other, were the oaths of fidelity to him as the lawful supreme magistrate taken at his receipt of the royal authority. And consequently, these covenant engagements became fundamental constitutions, both in church and state, and the door of access into office-bearing in either, and formal ground of the people's subjection. Then was the church's appearance beautiful as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, and terrible as an army with banners. From what is noticed above, the presbytery cannot but declare their hearty approbation of the zeal courage and faithfulness of our honored ancestors in their valiant contendings for the valuable liberties and privileges of the spiritual kingdom of the Messiah until they got the same established and the nations brought under the most solemn, sacred, and inviolable engagements to maintain every branch of this glorious reformation. A reformation not only from the more gross errors and idolatries of popery, but from the more refined superstition of prelacy and all that anti-Christian and Erastrian supremacy that in former times had been exercised on the heritage of the Lord. A reformation of both the divine ordinances of ministry and magistracy, from all the abuses and corruptions thereof by the inventions of men, joined with the above-mentioned establishment of them in some measure of agreeableness unto their scriptural institutions. Like as the presbytery did, and hereby do declare their approbation of and adherence unto foresaid reformation in all the different parts and branches thereof, attained from 1638 to 1650 inclusive, and sworn to in the National and Solemn League and Covenant, not exclusive of such parts of Reformation as were attained unto prior to this, but as a further advance on this foundation, and as being much more pure and agreeable to the infallible standard of Scripture than any formerly arrived at in these nations. The daughter of Zion, thus going forth in the perfection of her beauty, when all ranks and degrees voluntarily subjected themselves unto the royal scepter of the Son of God, was most comely in the eyes of her beloved. But, oh, how is the gold become dim, and the most fine gold changed, 
The stones of the sanctuary are poured out on the top of every street, so that the house that was called, of all people, the house of prayer, is now become a den of thieves, being no less infamously despicable for deformation than formerly for purity of reformation, highly admired. This at first began with the public resolutions of the Commission of the General Assembly, 1650, above noticed, for taking into places of power and trust, in judicatories and armies, such persons as were known malignants, and in heart disaffected to the work, and people of God putting it in their power to destroy and pull down the Lord's work at their pleasure, a practice manifestly and consistent with their covenant engagements and the word of God, Deuteronomy 23, 9, 2 Chronicles 19, 2. Those that were then called protestors, from their opposing and protesting against these resolutions, continued steadfastly to witness against the same as the first remarkable step to make way for that bloody catastrophe that afterwards befell the church. The Lord then, in his righteous displeasure and controversy with the nation, for betraying of his cause and interest into the hands of his enemies, sold them into the hand of that conquering usurper Oliver Cromwell, who, having stripped them of their civil liberties, as the most effectual method to rob the church of her spiritual privileges, and nullify the forcible obligation of the sacred covenants, which, when preserved, serve as a strong barrier against all such usurpations, framed a hellish and almost unbounded toleration in Scotland of heretical and sectarian errors for gratification of the abettors thereof, which was followed with a deluge of irreligion and impiety drowning the nation in a still deeper apostasy. In this hour of temptation, the witnesses for Christ, endeavoring to keep the word of his patience, testified against these evils as contrary to the word and oath of God and destructive of the church's former glory. And Charles II, who had lately, by all the confirmations of word, writ, and solemn oath, obliged himself for the maintenance and defense of religion and liberty, having cast off the thing that was good, the enemy did pursue him so that he, instead of being able to stand as a head of defense to the nations, narrowly escaped with life from the enemy's hands, being obliged to abscond and fly before the sectaries into France, where, and in other parts, he remained in exile for the space of ten years. And there discovered he had no regard to the principles he had lately professed and sworn to maintain, but breaking his professed wedlock with Christ, is said at that juncture to have joined hands with the Romish whore, laying aside his cloak of professed godliness, and again taking up with the mystery of iniquity. <clears throat> During the ten years' usurpation of Cromwell, those who endeavored faithfulness had a fight of affliction to keep their ground. Yet after this came to a period they had a far more fierce encounter and of longer duration to engage in in the cruel and bloody tragedy acted upon them for the space of twenty-eight years. As by the public resolutions and foresaid unbounded toleration, the bounds fixed by Jehovah and homogulated and sworn to in our national attainments and constitutions 
were greatly altered. So the Parliament of England prepared the tools whereby the carved work of the sanctuary, as far as human craft and cruelty could invent, was broken down in restoring Charles II without any conditions required or express limitations set. And Sharp, being sent from the Church of Scotland to stand up for her rights and privileges, fraudulently sold her into the hands of her enemies, upon which many of the professed disciples of Christ, who followed him in the sunshine of prosperity and reformation, forsook him and fled into the enemy's camp. Thus our decline began. But oh, to what a dreadful height Erastianism, tyranny, and bloodshed arrived before the Lord in his providence put a stop to it. Although the presbytery cannot be supposed in a consistency with their present design to reckon up all, yet they would endeavor to take notice of some of the most remarkable instances of backsliding, treachery, and oppression, bloodshed, etc., acted in these nations during the late persecuting period, together with the faithful contendings and patient sufferings unto death of the saints and servants of Christ in this hot furnace of affliction into which they were cast. As, one, the unhappy restoration of Charles II in manner before mentioned commencing. The faithful declarations and testimonies given in favors of the covenanted reformation and uniformity were all on a sudden given up with. The viper received into our bosom and again advanced unto the regal dignity, who soon discovered himself to be of the serpentine seed, and by his wicked agency impeded the dragon, his master, by casting out of his mouth a flood of persecution after the church that he might cause her to be destroyed therewith. To this effect the anti-Christian yoke of abjured prelacy, with all its tyrannical laws and canonical train of observances, service books, ceremonies, etc., was speedily wreathed about England's neck, and Scotland soon felt part of its weight. For in the month of August 1660, when some of her most zealous and faithful ministers met upon this emergency, in order to send an address to the king, reminding him of his duty and solemn obligations to perform the same, the committee, appointed by the Parliament Anno 1651 for the exercise of government until another Parliament should meet, who then showed themselves zealous for the Reformation, yet now acted a counterpart by incarcerating the foresaid ministers and emitting a proclamation prohibiting all such meetings without the king's authority and all petitions and remonstrances under pretense that they were seditious. This was the first beginning of those sorrows and calamities that ensued in the many sanguinary laws afterwards made and executed upon the true friends of Zion. Number two. When the ministry, by means of the foresaid prohibitions, were much dispirited from their duty, dreading such usage as they had lately met with, the Parliament, which met in Scotland in December 1661, falls upon breaking down the carved work of the sanctuary effectually and robbing our church of that depositum committed unto her by her glorious head. Thus, 
did they wickedly combine and gather themselves together to plot against the Lord and against his anointed, that they might break his bands and cast his cords from them. For which intent, after besmearing the consciences of most of the members with the guilt of that abominable and wicked oath of allegiance and supremacy, that they might be secured to the court and king's interest, and ready to swallow down whatever might be afterwards proposed, they, packed and, they passed an act recissory, declaring all the parliaments and acts of parliament made in favor of reformation from the year 1640 to 1651 null and void. The king's supremacy over all persons and in all causes is asserted. All meetings, assemblies, leagues, and covenants without the king's authority are declared unlawful and unwarrantable. The renewing of the solemn league and covenant or any other covenants or public oaths without the king's special warrant and approbation is discharged. Besides these, another heinous act was framed by the same Parliament for observing every 29th of May as an anniversary thanksgiving in commemoration of the unhappy restoration of this ruiner of religion and reformation. Number three. In the second session of the pretended Parliament, Anno 1662, diocesan Erastian prelacy is established and the king solemnly invested with the church's headship by act of parliament, wherein it is blasphemously declared that the ordering and disposal of the external government and policy of the church doth properly belong unto his majesty, majesty as an inherent right of the crown by virtue of his royal prerogative and supremacy in all causes ecclesiastical. All such acts of parliament or council are rescinded which might be interpreted, as their acts bear, to give any church, power, jurisdiction, or government to the office bearers of the church, other than that which acknowledges a dependence upon and subordination to the sovereign power of the king as supreme. <clears throat> and although the lordly prelates were hereby promoted to all the privileges and dignities they possessed before the year 1638, yet must they all be accountable to the king in all their administrations and in subordination to him as universal bishop of all England, Scotland, and Ireland by which the fountain of church power and authority is lodged in the king's person, and Christ is exoctorated and dethroned as king and head in Zion. And further, by the second act of that perfidious parliament, the covenant reformation and all that was done in favor thereof from 1638 to 1650 was declared treasonable and rebellious, Alike treasonable, it was reckoned for subjects, on pretense of reformation or any other pretense whatsoever, to enter into any federal association or to take up arms against the king. <coughs> they also declared that the national covenant, as sworn in the year 1638, 
and the solemn league and covenant were and are in themselves unlawful oaths, and that they were imposed upon and taken by the subjects of this kingdom contrary to the fundamental laws and liberties thereof. And to complete all, they repeal all acts, ecclesiastical and civil, approving the covenants, particularly the acts of the Venerable Assembly of Glasgow, 1638, declaring it an unlawful and seditious meeting. Thereafter, by a wicked act of the Council of Glasgow, more than 300 ministers were illegally thrust from their charges for their nonconformity in discountenancing a diocesan meeting or synod appointed by the Archbishop of Glasgow and not observing the anniversary Thanksgiving, May 28th, May 29th, enjoined by the Parliament. The rest were violently ejected from the lawful exercise of their ministry in their several parishes and were afterwards commanded by Act of Parliament to remove themselves and their families 20 miles distant from their respective flocks and not to reside within six miles of any of their so-called cathedrals or three miles of a burg. By these means, many of these poor persecuted ministers with their families were brought into great hardships and wants, being so far removed from their beloved and affectionate flocks that they were deprived of that help from them, that doubtless they would cheerfully have ministered for relieving them in their necessities and straits. All this was done at the instigation of the prelates, who could not endure to have a godly Presbyterian minister near them, and were resolved to make them as miserable as possible. As the observation of that anniversary Holy Day, May 29, was again enjoined by this Parliament, 1662, with certification, the non-observance of which was one main cause of the sufferings of the ministers above noticed, we cannot pass over without mentioning that most abhorred and heaven-daring heaven ignominy and contempt put upon our solemn and sacred covenants, and upon God the great party in them. At Linlithgow on that day, by a theatrical exposing and pre presumptuous committing them to the flames, together with the causes of God's wrath, lex rex, acts of parliament, acts of committees of estates, and acts of assemblies made during what they called the 22 years rebellion, that is, from 1638 to 1660, done by the authority of the pretended magistrates there, one of which, and the minister Ramsay, were formerly zealous and active covenanters and consequently now publicly avowed and proclaimed their perjury in the face of the sun, and left an indelible stain upon their memory. Hitherto, although many, both ministers, gentlemen, and others, had endured unexpressible hardships and severities, yet few or none suffered to the death, save that noble peer, the Marquis of Argyle, who was condemned by the Parliament 1661 and beheaded May 27th and the Reverend Mr. James Guthrie, who suffered five days thereafter. These two were singled out, the one in the state, the other in the church, to fall a victim to the resentment and fury of the enemies of that covenanted work of reformation, which they had both in an eminent manner been honored of God to support in advance, and also a specimen of what was afterwards to be the fate of all that should adhere to the same glorious cause, and stand up for God against these workers of iniquity. 
and as the foundation of that anti-Christian and wicked hierarchy in the church, and of arbitrary power and absolute tyranny in the state, was laid in the blood of these two proto-martyrs for the covenant and cause of God, so they now, July 1663, proceeded to build it up with the blood of another noble and worthy patriot, the eminently religiously and learned Lord Warriston. He having before in 1660, when Argyle was apprehended, been ordered, together with several others, to be secured and committed to prison, fled beyond sea to escape the fury of his enemies, and even there did their crafty malice reach him. For, having sent out one of their bloodthirsty emissaries in quest of him, he was apprehended by him at Rhone in France, brought over to London, and sent thence to Edinburgh, where he was executed on a former unjust sentence of forfeiture and death passed upon him in his absence. Thus they built up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. But all this was nothing to the cruelty that followed, and the righteous blood afterward shed in that quarrel. Number four, although the faithful servants of Christ gave too silent submission for a time to these encroachments made upon their sacred functions, yet, as they received not their mission from men, so they resolved not to become the servants of men, but to hazard the loss of everything that was dear to them in this world, that they might show themselves faithful unto their Lord and Master, and valiant for His truth upon the earth, and going forth without the camp, bearing His reproach. When they could no longer, with a safe conscience, enjoy their benefices and churches, and the Lord, Lord so expressly called for their service, in feeding the starving souls of His people, they betook themselves to the open fields, setting their faces to all the storms to which they were exposed by that high commission court that was erected, wherein the bishops were chief agents, being made therein necessary members for putting the former with what subsequent wicked laws were made against the service of Christ in execution. And by this time that deceiving, cruel, perjured, apostate bishop, Sharp, had obtained the presidency in this and all other public courts in the kingdom, the proceedings of this court were very unjust, cruel, and arbitrary, similar to its preposterous and illegal constitution. Persons were, without any accusation, information, witness, or accuser, arraigned before them to answer to whatever interrogatories they were pleased to propose, without license to make any lawful defense, or, upon their offering so to do, were required to take the oath of supremacy, the refusal of which was accounted cause sufficient for proceeding against them. And although taking order with papists was first in their commission, yet last, or rather not at all, in execution, while their infernal rage was principally set upon Presbyterians in fining, confining, and imprisoning them for the nonconformity of ministers, and their disregarding their pretended sentences of deposition, and the people's refusing to countenance the authority and ministry of these prolatic wolves who came in to scatter and tear the flock of Christ, but endeavoring to cleave to their lawful pastors, have equal friends and foes with them, and hear Christ's law of kindness from their mouth. The idol of jealousy was thus set up in the house of God, 
and our Lord Jesus Christ, sacrilegiously robbed of his incommunicable supremacy and headship over his church by the state, whereby the Pope's supremacy was well-nigh claimed, and Spanish Inquisition cruelty almost acted by this abominable court. And all, at the instigation and for the gratification of these monsters of iniquity, the prelates, who still agitated the court to exercise more cruelty than even of themselves they were inclined to. Number five. Upon the decline of this rigorous court, new measures were again fallen upon for the oppression, suppression, and extirpation of the true Reformed religion and the professors of it. The council being very diligent and careful to deprive the Lord's people of everything which might contribute to their establishment and confirmation in the righteousness and equity of the cause and covenant of God for which they suffered, and which tended to expose their tyranny and treason against God, ordered the famous Mr. Brown's apologetical relation to be burnt in the high street of Edinburgh on February 14, 1666, by the hand of the common hangman. And all persons who had such who had copies of said book were required to give them up, and such as concealed them to be fined. Such was their hellish enmity and spite against our covenanted reformation, and everything written in defense thereof, and in vindication of those that suffered for their adherence to it. <clears throat> About the same time, Sharp, for the more effectual accomplishment of his wicked designs, the High Commission being now dissolved, and his guilty conscience, it seems, suggesting fears of an insurrection of the oppressed to relieve themselves from their cruel oppressors, obtains an order from the king for raising an additional number of forces for the security and establishment of himself and his associates in their thrones of iniquity, by destroying all the faithful in the land, oppressing and wearing out the saints of the Most High, and burning up and dispersing all the synagogues of God in the nation. In consequence of this, about 3,000 foot and eight troops of dragoons were got together, and the command of them given to Dalziel of Bins, a wicked, fierce, cruel man. These were the instruments of that unprecedented barbarity, cruelty, and oppression committed in the West after the defeat of Colonel Wallace and his little army of Covenanters at Pentland Hills, November 28, 1666. The occasion and cause of which rising was, in short, this. Sir James Turner had been sent the year before into the southwest shires of Dumfries and Kirkabright in order to suppress conventicles, so they call the assemblies of God's people for public worship and other religious exercises, levy the fines appointed by the Parliament, and oblige the people to conform and submit to the bishops and curates by force of arms. Turner, in pursuance of these cruel orders, committed great severities, dreadfully oppressed, robbed, and spoiled the country. In the parish of Dalry in Galloway, three or four of his blackguard crew, seizing upon a poor countryman, carried him to his own house and were going to torture him in a cruel manner by setting him naked on a red-hot gridiron, which four of the persecuted party hearing of, they repaired to the house, disarmed the soldiers, upon their refusing to be entreated in behalf of the poor man, and delivered their fellow sufferer. And lest the rest of the soldiers quartered in the parish to force people to keep to their parish church, should fall upon them, being joined with seven or eight more of their friends, they attacked them early next morning, being about twelve in number, and disarmed them, killing one that made resistance. 
whereupon the country being alarmed and being apprehensive from sad experience of the revenge Sir James would take upon the whole country for this affront, without distinction of age or sex, they determined to stand in their own defense. And getting together a good number of horse and foot, they marched to Dumfries, surprised Turner himself, take him prisoner, and disarm his soldiers without any further violence. Being thus by providence engaged without any hope of retreat, and being joined by many more of their brethren in the same condition with themselves, some ministers, and Colonel Wallace, after chosen general, they come to Lanark, where they renew the covenant, November 26, 1666, and thence to Pentland Hills, where, being attacked by Dalziel and his bloodhounds, they were, notwithstanding their bravery and repulsing the enemy twice, at last totally routed. Many killed and taken prisoners. Most of the prisoners treacherously executed, notwithstanding they were taken upon solemn promise to have their lives spared. Of whom the Lord was graciously pleased, not only to accept of a testimony by sufferings, but also countenance them even to admiration in sealing the same with their blood. After this there were several edicts issued out against all who had any hand in this appearance for God's cause and covenant, called by them rebellion, a horrible conspiracy and what not. All the subjects were strictly charged not to harbor, reset, supply, or in any manner of way correspond with any that were concerned in this engagement, but that they pursue and deliver them up to justice, or otherwise be esteemed and punished as favorers of it. This appearance for religion and liberty became for a time the principal crime of which those were indicted who were prosecuted by this wicked council and other merciless enemies to whom they committed the management of their affairs. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.